Once upon a time, in a land far away. I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited for this episode because it's been one of those that's been a little bit of a long time coming. I want to classify it as a listener request, even though this listener is a family member of mine. (laughs) (laughs) But they are like, it's so my brother-in-law suggested a story to us, the story of the 10 Chinese brothers, because when he was growing up, he had a book, like a picture book that told that story that apparently he loved. And I'd talked to a bunch of people since then asking him if they had heard of it. And like, it was pretty much like 50-50. Like half people are like, what on earth are you talking about? I've never heard of this thing at all. Yeah. And then the other half were like, oh my gosh, yes, we had that book. I loved it so much. And I'm in the one that was like, I had never, ever heard of it at all. So, you know, I suggested to Katrina and said like, hey, this might be a fun thing to do. And... Here we are, like, almost a full year later. (laughs) Well, that was funny. Finally getting around to it. It was funny, too, because when you asked me, like, have you heard of the the story of the the Ten Chinese Brothers? I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I have a copy of it. Because there's a scholastic book version that came out in, like, the 90s that my mom had grabbed. I think we had a lot of books that were like Asian folk tales. I think they were trying to help us like contextualize living in Thailand or something. I don't know. Right. Or maybe or maybe yeah. everybody has a lot of Asian stories on their bookshelves. <laughs> I don't know. But I still like I had that book so I went and I grabbed it and it was funny because I looked at it and I was like, mine says the seven Chinese brothers. Why is it seven? And then I googled it really fast and I discovered that like apparently this is a story that has been around since like the 13th century. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and it's it was shared between so China wasn't always like a unified country obviously. It was a bunch of different groups of people, but they mm-hmm. all kind of had a story like it, similar to it with different numbers of brothers. So it was like either it was usually between 10 and five brothers. Some of it was like <laughs> 10, nine, seven, five brothers. And right. with like a variety of like superpowers. And so they would be used interchangeably, like in the story. So I think in the conversation we had, I figured that out and like told you about it. Like, Oh yeah. Okay. So apparently the numbers like vary. That's crazy. And then we put the suggestion on our two talk about list. <laughs> Yeah. And then it's just for been, a year. Yeah, it's just been like <laughs> sitting because you know, I was kind of like, oh, I like I don't know what we would talk about the story with anything. It would just be like, oh, so I have a scholastic book <laughs> of this like <laughs> story. Yeah. And so yeah, it like got put, you know, kind of like on the back burner in the back of our minds on our list of possible episodes. So then last month I happened to be like at a Zoom conference and I talked about it. I think I talked about it in the last episode as well. It's like I'm yeah. just like I just want to like name drop that I was <laughs> at this when really it was like I just randomly found <laughs> a Zoom conference with this with Jack Sipes is like the speaker and I was there. So it's not even like I had like some special connection or something. <laughs> it was just a random right. thing. But we can pretend like it's name dropping and that I'm like BFFs with Jack Zipes. Yeah. And if people because I, I didn't really get into it last time about like who Jack Zipes is. So Jack Zipes is a professor emeritus because he's like in his mid 80s. And so, yeah, he's <laughs> not currently a professor. Um, he still is working, though, and publishing books. He like started his own like publishing company called Little Mole and Honey Bear. It sounded like it was like the pet names for like that he and his wife have for each other, uh, which I'm like, that's so sweet. That is sweet. 
But yeah, so he's a professor emeritus of German comparative literature and cultural studies, and he's published and lectured on German literature, critical theory, German Jewish culture, children's literature, and folklore. He's written over 20 books, and he also has been like the editor for, I want to say, like over 30 other different books that he's, you know, written the like intro of those. So a lot of stuff. Um, and he also has some very strong feelings uh, about Disney <laughs> and how Disney treats the, folk tales and fairy tales. The company or the man or both? Both. Hardcore both. Oh, man. But also fun thing. So a lot of people have heard the, there's like a quote that I see like go around all the time. That's like, if you want children to be smart, read them fairy tales. If you want them to be even smarter, read them more fairy tales. And mm-hmm. that quote is then attributed to Albert Einstein. So that quote is actually Albert Einstein said that to Jack Zipes's grandmother because mm-hmm. she wanted to know how she could make sure that her grandson, Jack Zipes, grew up to be you know, as smart and capable as Albert Einstein. And so Albert Einstein, basically, I'm like, if if Albert Einstein had been like, take him to the planetarium, would he have like, <laughs> or like, take him to the zoo, like, would Jack Sipes have grown up to be like, uh, like a biologist? Yeah, yeah, like a famous biologist yeah. or something. But, but yeah, his grandmother took that advice seriously. And she was like, okay, I'm gonna make sure that he is like, really well-versed in like folk tales and fairy tales. And he grew up to have this like amazing job in literature and a professor. So that's a little bit about who Jack Sipes is, but during the zoom conference, somebody asked him what his favorite fairy tale was and why. And I am always interested to hear the answer to that question. Cause I think it always says a lot about the headspace of the person who's answering that question. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, it's it's interesting if somebody's like, like, I like Snow White because I think I'm very beautiful as well. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, okay, well, now I know something about you that's interesting. <laughs> so I was very interested to hear what Jack Sipes had, like, you know, had to say because theoretically he has read a lot of folk tales and fairy tales yeah that's the thing that's interesting too that i that it's like when you ask someone that's like an expert in something like what their favorite of that thing is you know that they like you said they've had exposure to a lot of it you know i mean you ask the rat like an average person on the street like oh what's your favorite movie it's like they might not see a lot of movies they may only see you know like a couple movies a year but you ask like someone else like oh what's your favorite movie of all time and it might be this like really obscure thing that then you can go and watch and be like, wow, this really is brilliant. Or if it's not, if they say like, oh, it's Cinderella because of this, you can know that it's coming from a perspective that will add something valuable or interesting to the reasoning why. Yeah. Beyond just like, oh, it's a fun story or whatever. Yeah, because like I'm a lot less interested in knowing what, and this is no offense to you, Jeff, I'm less interested in knowing like what your favorite movie is than I would be interested in knowing what like a famous director's favorite movie yeah. is. Oh, yeah, and that's totally. like the same like thing where it's like, I think exactly like what you're saying is that like, if you take somebody off the streets and you're like, what's your favorite folk to- tale or fairy tale? And off the top of their head, they can think of like 10 and they yeah. tell you like their favorite of like 10 versus yeah. Somebody like Jack Zipes where it's like, he's, immersed himself in this thousands yeah Yeah. so i was really interested to hear like what his answer was and he actually named a grimm's brothers fairy tale that i had never heard before which that might be a shocker for some people to know i have not read every single one of the 200 plus grimm brothers fairy (laughs) tales yet yet yeah yet We'll get there. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty confident. (laughs) That's what somebody, when we first started the podcast, they were like, what are you going to do when you run out of like fairy tales to tell? And I was like, oh, honey. (laughs) It's impossible to run out of like folk tales and fairy tales, not to mention Grimm's Brothers. There's over 200. So, yeah, we're good for a while. Yeah, we'll be fine. 
So, what was the story? Oh, yeah, I guess I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) So, the story was called How Six Men Got On in the World. And as he started to describe the story, I noticed that it sounded shockingly similar to the 10 Chinese brothers. Nice. So, even as he was talking about the message in how six men got on in the world that resonated with him because he really, Jack Zipes really enjoys stories or he's very interested in stories that kind of speak to fascism and dismantling fascism or stories that can be used as covert ways to talk about tearing down fascist leaders or tricking fascist leaders. Interesting. And So that's what he really liked about how six men got on in the world. And I knew that my copy of the seven Chinese brothers was also about the same thing. Oh, wow. And so I know I told you this is going to be a really light and fun episode, but we're going to be talking about fascism. (laughs) (laughs) Only a little bit. (laughs) And so that is how (laughs) that is the tale of how. The seven Chinese brothers jumped off of our wait list and onto the schedule nice. was Jack Zipes retelling a story. So Jeff is now going to be retelling the tale of how six got on in the world by the Brothers Grimm. Hopefully Jack's not disappointed with my retelling. I doubt he listens to the podcast. <laughs> Somebody at like the Zoom conference actually like asked, "What do you think about like podcasters who like retell fairy tales?" And he was like, "Yeah, go for it." Nice. <laughs> so at least he wasn't like it's garbage and no one should ever do it. And if you do it, I hate you. I think he liked the idea of people finding tales that get talked about less. And then taking hold of them and doing whatever they wanted with them. Yeah. That, that seems to excite him. So there once was a man who understood all kind of arts, which I thought was an interesting thing to bring up first about this man, because it goes on to say that he served in war and he behaved bravely. The art but of once war. The war- oh. <laughs> yeah. So it's like he was super into art and he was in battles all the time, straight up killing people. But when the war was over, he got his kind of dismissal and he was given three farthings as his expenses to kind of get him on the way. And he was not impressed with this pittance that he was given. And he's like, no way am I going to be content with this. He's like, if only I could assemble the right crew of the right people, I could get the king to give me all of the treasure of the country. It's like, man, aim high, dude. So full of anger, he went into the forest and he saw a man there who had plucked six trees out of the ground, like not tiny little like saplings, like full trees, just ripped them out of the ground. And so this angry man, former soldier says to him, he's like, you're going to be my servant and you're going to come with me. And this super strong ripping trees out of the ground guy was like, yeah, okay. Uh, but first I got to take this bundle of sticks home to my mom. So he grabs another one of the trees, wraps it around the five others, and then takes that bundle on his back and they go on their way. It's like, this guy must've had a really commanding presence to just be like, Hey, be my servant. And he's like, all right, let's do it. Yeah, he's like, might as well. So the guy, super strong guy delivers the trees to his mom and then comes back and he's like, all right, We were probably going to have a pretty good time in the world here. So they go out and they walk on for a little while and they see a huntsman who's kneeling and he had a gun pulled up to his shoulder and he was about to fire. And so the first guy, the ex-soldier, who they kind of refer to from now on as the master. So the master said to the huntsman, hey, what are you going to (laughs) shoot? And I loved this. So the huntsman answered, Two miles from here, there's a fly sitting on a branch of an oak tree, and I want to shoot out its left eye. So he's like, you know, showing off how great of a marksman he is, that he can see two miles away a fly, and he's going to get not just the fly, but a tiny little part of this fly. And so the master's like, all right, come with me then. Which I'm like, how small is that bullet? (laughs) 
Because I'm like, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that if you shoot a fly, it doesn't matter what you're aiming at, like his eye or his leg or what. If you hit a fly with a bullet, I'm pretty sure you hit all of the fly <laughs> with the bullets. That just Maybe it's the edge of it's just going to like graze the left eye and like... And also, like, know. what did that fly ever do to that guy? <laughs> he's like, oh, you... That was deserving Yeah, he's, he's like, you threw up on my sandwich. <laughs> I'm going to, like... And it's like, buddy, seems like an overreaction, but okay. So the master somehow convinces this guy to come along with him as well. And they're like, oh, the three of us together, we're going to get on pretty well in the world. And so the huntsman's like, all right, sounds cool. And he goes with him. So the three of them continue on their way, and they come to this group of seven windmills whose sails or blades are turning around at a super high speed. So they're looking around. They can't see what is causing these windmills to turn. So they walk another two miles, and they find a guy who's sitting on a tree, and he's shutting one of his nostrils, kind of like pushing it closed with his finger, and he's blowing out of the other. And so the master is like, good gracious, what are you doing up there? Which I would probably say, too, because it looks like the guy's like doing snot rockets or whatever. But the man replied, oh, well, two miles from here, there's seven windmills. And look, I'm blowing them until they turn round and round. And so the master was like, all right, you're someone that I need on my team. Man, I'm just thinking about how not COVID safe that is. <laughs> he could infect you with COVID from two miles away. <laughs> Disgusting. And so now that they've grown to four... The master's like, if we four are together, we can carry the whole world before us. And at this point, I'm starting to wonder, I was like, besides just his anger at the king, like, what did the first guy have to offer the group? <laughs> he's, he's gathering a crew. He's the Nick Fury. He doesn't have any superpowers himself, but he's assembling a team of Avengers who are going to take money from the king. Yeah, sometimes just, just being a good leader is more than enough. Yeah. So now that this guy had joined, who they came to call the Blower, they continued on, and shortly after, they found a man who was standing on one leg, and he'd taken the other leg completely off and laid it down beside him. And uh, the master, I'm guessing jokingly, said, you've arranged things very comfortably to have a rest, <laughs> as if it's like just a normal thing that people do to take their legs off when they want to break. And the guy was like, I'm a runner, but to stop myself from running too fast, I've taken off one of my legs. If I run with both, I go faster than any bird can fly. And so the master was like, that's a cool superpower. Come with me. If the five of us get together, we'll be unstoppable. And so the runner's like, all right, I've got nothing better to do. So he joined. Not long after that, they found a guy who wore a cap, but he wore it like on the side of his head, so much so that it completely covered one of his ears. And the master sees this guy walking around. He's like, hey, don't wear your cap like that. You look like a Tom fool. <laughs> and the guy's like, hey, I can't wear it any other way because if I put my hat on straight, then it causes this terrible frost to come. All the birds around just freeze in the air and drop dead on the ground. And so the master's like, whoa, that's cool. Come with me. That's cool. <laughs> Literally. He's like, if the six of us are together, we can do anything. So now they've got the six, the full team assembled. The A-team, the Avengers, the Justice League, whatever you want to call them. Each with their particular overly specific skill. So now that the team is complete, they came to the king. And this king like all kings are wont to do, had some really arbitrary way of deciding who was going to marry his daughter. And this king came up with the idea that his daughter would have to run a race against the man that would be her husband, and they would have to win against the daughter. And if you lost the race, not only would you not get to marry the princess, but you would also lose your head. You'd be executed. For the audacity. <laughs> For the audacity of thinking that you could beat his daughter in a foot race. So the master comes up, the ex-soldier, and he says, here I am. I'm going to vie for your daughter's hand in marriage, but I'm going to have my servant run in my place. And the king's like, okay, that's fine. But both of your heads are on the line. So not only will your head be taken off, but his head will be taken off also. He needs to know that everything is on the line to secure his victory. 
So the guy agreed. So the master started helping the runner get ready for the race. He buckled on his leg and he was giving a little bit of pep talk and saying like, hey, go out there, run fast and win this thing for us. And so for some reason, the race was fixed that it wasn't just a race. They had to go and get water from a well that was really far away. So the servant and the king's daughter. And the first to bring the water back would be the winner. And so the runner got his pitcher, the king's daughter got a pitcher, and they set off running at the same time. And the king's daughter had gotten a little way, but the runner just like took off. And it wasn't long before he was completely out of sight. And the king's daughter like didn't even see him run by. It was just like the wind had whistled past her. So he runs out, gets to the well, fills his pitcher up, and he runs halfway back. But by the time he's getting about halfway back, he is very tired. So he's like, I've got a pretty good lead. I'm just going to lay down and rest for a little bit. So strangely, he makes a pillow out of a horse's skull. That's dark. Lays his his head down on it for a nice little nap. Which like, I love how my brain is immediately like the tortoise and the hare. Yeah, me too. (laughs) But there's also, there is a point to it being a horse's skull because the point was he was trying to make it so that it was uncomfortable. Like a horse's skull does not make for a very good pillow. So he wanted to be uncomfortable so that he would nap for just a little bit and it would wake him up again. Which I'm like, bro, just finish the race. Yeah. And you can sleep when you're dead. Done. You can sleep when you're dead. You can sleep <laughs> when can it's s- over. Like, yeah. Especially if he's running as quickly as he, you know, says he is. He, it's just a couple seconds away. Just get it done. Yeah. So in the meantime, while this guy is snoozing, the king's daughter makes it to the well, and she starts hurrying back with her pitcher full of water. But she comes across the runner asleep, and she's, like, super happy because she thought she was going to lose for sure. But she sees him sleeping there, and so she dumps out his pitcher of water and continues on because if he doesn't have the pitcher of water, he won't be able to win. And so it seems pretty bad for the runner at this point in the story. But luckily for him and for our protagonist, the master slash ex-soldier, but luckily for him, the huntsman was standing on top of the castle and he'd been keeping his keen, sharp eyes on everything. And he saw what was going on. And he's like, okay, there's no way I'm going to let the king's daughter win against us. So he loaded up his gun pulled it up, and he shot the horse's skull out from under the runner without hurting the runner at all. And so, of course, the runner woke up to a bullet flying through a skull that he was sleeping on, leapt up, saw his pitcher was empty, and that the king's daughter was way ahead of him. So he was like, okay, we still got this. He ran back to the well, filled his pitcher up, and then started running back towards the finish line. And he actually made it there a full 10 minutes before the king's daughter did. This was quite the cross-country event. Yeah. So the king was pretty upset because apparently he... No one likes a show-off, buddy. (laughs) No no one likes a show-off. And he didn't want his daughter to marry this common discharged soldier. And his daughter didn't want to marry this common discharged soldier either. So they went off the king and his daughter and they were counseling together about how they're going to get rid of this dude and his superhero friends this nick fury nobody (laughs) so a light bulb kind of goes off over the king's head and he's like i have an idea he's turns to his daughter the princess is like don't worry they're never going to come back again and so he goes to these guys and he's like hey congratulations you won You're the best. No one's ever done this before. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have a huge feast. So he takes him into this room, which has a floor made of iron. And all of the doors were also made of iron. And the windows were guarded by iron bars. And it's like, why does someone have just an iron room inside of their house? Yeah, why was this already constructed? (laughs) So in this room, there was a table that was covered in delicious food. And he's like, all right, go in, enjoy yourselves. And when the master and his superhero friends went inside, the king slams the door, bolts it shut, and he sends for the cook and demands that he make a fire in the room underneath the iron room until the iron of the room became red hot. And so the cook did this. He goes underneath to, I guess, the room beneath the iron room and starts building a huge fire. And... 
even the people who are sitting up there, the six guys, they're eating their food and they're starting to feel a little hot at this point. They don't realize what's going on. They think it's just the food. You know, they think they're getting the meat sweats. <laughs> but the heat keeps getting greater and greater and greater. And so they're like, all right, I kind of want to take a step out of this room. It's feeling a little toasty. But it became clear to them pretty quickly that, oh, the windows are bolted with iron and the door is completely locked. And they're like, oh, man. The king is trying to do something nefarious to us. They thought he was trying to suffocate them or something. And so the guy who wears his hat all askance is like, I know just what to do. I'll put my hat on straight and that'll cause a frost to come in. And so he did just that. And a frost came in. It cooled down the room. Cooled down the room so much that the food on the table was frozen solid. So after an hour or two had passed, the king's like, okay, these guys have definitely been roasted to death already. He ordered the doors to be open so he could look in and see for himself that these guys were dead. But when the doors were opened, all six of these guys are standing around alive and well. And they're like, oh, thanks for opening the door. We're actually getting kind of chilly in here. We'd like to step out and warm ourselves up. And the king saw that, like, the food and everything was frozen, and he was furious. And he went to the cook and scolded him. He's like, why didn't you do what I told you to do? I told you to build a fire. We're trying to roast these guys alive. And the cook's like, I did. Come on, look. And he goes down, and he shows them there's, like, a huge fire that was burning under there. And he was like, okay, somehow these six guys, they got the better of me, but they are not going to get the better of me again. So he goes back, and he's trying to think of another way that he can get rid of these dudes. So he comes up with a plan. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to have to buy him off. That's all there is to it. So the king brings the chief of these six guys to him and he says, hey, I'm going to pay you off with a bunch of gold if you will just renounce my daughter. Don't marry her. The king says, I'll give you a, a bunch of gold if you just renounce my daughter. You know, take as much gold as you want. How much gold would satisfy you? And so the guy was like, okay. Just give me as much gold as my servant can carry, and I'll not ask for your daughter's hand in marriage that I deserve for winning your contest. And the king was like, oh, okay, I'm getting off easier than I thought. It's just as much gold as his servant can carry. And so the ex-soldier dude was like, okay, we'll come back in 14 days to get the gold. And so in the meantime of these two weeks, the ex-soldier, master of the six dudes, has... Every tailor in the whole kingdom constructing a gigantic sack that they can fill with gold. And when it was ready, he grabbed his servant, who was the strong ripping trees out of the ground guy, take the sack, and he goes back to the king. And so they start bringing gold by, you know, the caseload to fill up this sack. And the servant is like trying to convince them to just fill up the whole sack. So eventually they bring literally all the treasure in the entire kingdom and they dump it into the sack and it's still not full. So this guy being a little cheeky is like, you know, he looks back in the sack. He's like, I thought I told you guys to fill this thing all the way up. Oh, well, I guess since that's all the treasure in the kingdom, sometimes people do tie up their sacks when it's not even all the way full. So he ties it up, slings the entire wealth of the country over his back and starts walking away. And the king is none too pleased to see all the wealth of his kingdom being carried away on the back of a single servant. So the king calls on his horsemen to get on their horses and ride out and kill the six people that have just robbed him of all of his wealth. And as they're doing so, he's like yelling out to them saying like, you're going to be my prisoners. Put down the sack or we're going to have you cut to pieces. And uh, the blower was like, oh, what's that you say? We're going to be your prisoners. He's like, instead of that happening, how about all of you just go and dance in the air? And so he plugs up one of his nostrils with his finger and he blows as hard as he can. And he sends the two regiments of horsemen that the king had sent after him flying into the air. And it says like, literally, then they were driven away from each other and carried into the blue sky over all the mountains. One here, one there. And there was one guy, the sergeant who was crying for mercy who was like gravely wounded, but he was a brave soldier and he didn't deserve to be treated poorly. So the blower eased off on the wind a little bit so that that guy could come down without being injured any further. And so the blower said to that sergeant, he said, you go and tell your king that he better send some better horsemen and I'll blow them all into the air. And so when the king heard this, he was like, okay, better let him go. They're obviously very magical and powerful. 
And so the six took the riches home, divided among themselves, and lived contented and wealthy until they died. The end. So now that we all know the story of how six got on in the world, I'm going to be telling a version of the 10 Chinese brothers. I'm actually going to be telling the seven Chinese brothers because that's the most complete story that I have. But first, I'm going to explain why I'm using that version and what the other versions that are available are. Okay. So this is a story that is dated around the time of the Ming Dynasty, which is between the 1368 to the mid-1600s. And this is also credited as being one of the like oldest legends that feature characters in a superhero fashion, which I think is awesome. Nice. It's like, yeah. I, I mean, it's funny because we were comparing like how six got on in the world to like the Avengers, but it right. really is like, like, yeah, characters like this are like the prototype for like superheroes that it's like, they're, they're humans that are super powered. They're like X-Men that like, right. They're not like gods and yeah, deities and stuff like yeah, that. Exactly. Or like demigods, anything like that. They're right. humans who have super natural like abilities. So I was trying to make sure that I, as always get as close to like an original version as possible, especially because like, I understand like we're, if we're getting an English version of a story from China, we're always getting, you know, secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand translations. Yeah. And so I did a bit of research to kind of figure out which version is one of the, like, best versions. So there was a book in America that came out in 1938 by Claire Hutchett Bishop called the five Chinese brothers. And there are videos on YouTube that you could like watch a reading of this book. There were some things that I personally thought were problematic Mm -hmm. in that version that were racist depictions of like Chinese people, Um, especially in crowd scenes when they basically just drew every single person looking exactly the same because that's kind of like a a trope in america that like all asian people look the same which is highly offensive so and that book again was written in 1938 and that book was based off of a version that was collected by a western missionary her name was adele fields and she had recorded a version of the story in the 1890s called the five queer brothers which i just want to say i want there to be like a story competition that is like all it has to do like i want a fairy tale a folk tale that people are like writing my only stipulation is that the title is the five queer brothers (laughs) there needs to be more queer fairy tales (laughs) that is just a fact and so I, I'm like, I read the title and I was like, I really wish that this was like going to be. This was what you thought it would be yeah, based on yeah. just the title alone through a modern lens. Exactly. Like that is what I want. Um, so anyway, so that version that was collected by that Western missionary, she says that she heard it from the Chinese people that she was staying with. And I'm not discrediting what she said i don't know but it is different from the the one that i have which is the seven chinese brothers printed in 1990 by margaret may that was published through scholastic in 1990s because i looked further into the tale and it is based the closest off of the oldest version in Chinese that I was able to find, which was great. And what makes that even more interesting to the thing that we're discussing is that while the story that was collected by that Western missionary 
had the same title and some of the same characters, it did not include the element of kind of like fighting a fascist leader. (laughs) So one thing that I love when I'm looking at like a collection of tales or even like a children's tale is like an editor's note. I love a good editor's note or introductory (laughs) essay into like a group of like tales. You would nerd. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, yes. And so I thought it was super interesting when I was looking through my copy of the seven Chinese brothers by Margaret May, because in her editor's note, she talks about emperor Qin Shi Huang He's the emperor who has been given credit for unification of China, but he is also a very controversial figure because of like the kind of leader that he was and the the projects that went on and he was alive in the 200 BCs. Okay. So long before like this story came about, but there's actually like a lot of tales where he is a character and he is not necessarily well thought of in some tales. And one of the, the reasons why is because of the great wall of China. Anytime you have a massive building project that has taken place. There is like the people who it is for, who it's given credit by. And then there are the people who are building it. Yeah. There's a lot of exploitation that goes into a giant infrastructure undertaking like that. We see it all over the world time and time again throughout history. And I mean, even more recent projects like the Hoover Dam in Mm -hmm. Las Vegas, where these are hard labor jobs and people die in the process of them because of like how complicated they are. And the Great Wall of China was a massive project, lots of exploitation, lots of people who like suffered and died building that. You see the same similar things happening with um, like the pyramids in Egypt. So anytime you have just a massive infrastructure like that, there's a lot of like human suffering, a lot of injustice that happens. And so this story kind of centers around that. And when I looked into the older versions of the tales that I could find that were also in English so that I could understand, (laughs) there were tales that you know, this guy featured and the Great Wall of China featured. There's apparently like a popular like love story that centers around the Great Wall of China, like as well. There's even tales behind like why it was built and all this. So there with the Great Wall of China, there's a lot of stories that have like sprung up from it. And the Ten Chinese Brothers is one of those stories that it has taken these superhero brothers and put it in this story as a way to bring justice to the world. So I wanted to talk about the 10 Chinese brothers that are kind of like more original to the story, because we'll see slightly different powered brothers in the story that I'm going to tell you. There's the first brother who's capable of seeing for miles and miles and he's usually referred to as thousand mile eyes or rather Mm. so what's funny is the names directly translated so it's like when they're trying to do like a word for word translation right yeah yeah yeah. it they come out a little funnier which is like just a problem with like translation yeah so he's called thousand mile eye Then you have the second brother who is capable of hearing from miles away, and he's called following wind ears, which I like. Then there's the third brother, and he is has super strength, and he's called strong man three. (laughs) Which is like what happened to the first two strong men? (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm just kidding because he's the third brother. That's yeah, why yeah, Strongman yeah. Three. Um. So then the fourth one, he's capable of stretching, and he's invincible. Ooh. But so no, two for one. Yeah, but he's called th- <laughs> directly translated. It's thick-skinned four. Hmm. And just because like his skin can't like he's invincible, he, so his yeah. skin like, like you shoot him with a bullet or whatever, and it yeah, it's impenetrable. Yeah. So he's yeah. thick skinned. And he's probably impervious to insults as well. <laughs> thick skinned four. Yes, I got it. I got it. So the fifth brother, he is capable of flying, and so he's called Flying Five. Oh, very creative. Yes. And then this one's my favorite, the the direct transliteration. So he, the sixth brother, it says he has a solid, impenetrable head, <laughs> and he's also the smartest. And so he is Metalhead Six. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was my uh, instant messenger uh, handle back in the day. Metalhead Six. It's like he's memorized all the lyrics <laughs> to every Dual Hand album. Uh, <laughs> I just thought that one was funny because, like, being a metalhead yeah, means a- something else in English. And so, like, yeah. yeah. Um, so then Seven can grow in height. And so he is long leg seven. Mm. The eighth brother is capable of tunneling underground. (laughs) (laughs) So he's called tunneling eight. And then there is number nine and he has a huge mouth that can blow wind and shout loudly. Oh, wow. And his name is big mouth nine. (laughs) And then the 10th brother and the youngest brother is he can cry a river. And then in some stories, um, his tears can cure any illness. Oh, that's a handy thing. Yeah, but mostly just crying a vast amount of tears. (laughs) And that one's called crying 10. Oh, man. So if you want to see all of these characters in action, might I recommend... The 1995 film, Chinese film, Ten Brothers. I watched it with my sister uh, this last week, and it is it is a hoot. You can find it on YouTube. So the story I'm about to tell, it does not contain all of those characters, which is a pity, but it does contain most of them. So without further ado, The Seven Chinese Brothers. Once in the time of Emperor Qin Shi Huang, there lived seven remarkable brothers. It says they walked alike, they talked alike, and they looked so much alike that it was hard for others to tell one brother from another, which is going to come in handy in this story. (laughs) Each of the brothers had something special about them, an amazing ability all their own. So the first brother had amazing ears and could hear a fly sneeze from 100 miles away. (laughs) There's that fly again. The fly makes an appearance. He's sneezing, which is why they want to shoot out his eyeball. (laughs) And the second brother, he had amazing eyes that could see that fly from 100 miles away. The third brother had unusual strength. It said that if he walked straight across China, all he would have to do is lift up the mountains, walk under them, and then place them back down again as he was walking. <laughs> so he could, like, walk a straight line. So the fourth brother was strong, too, but he had bones of iron that would not break, buckle, or bend. Wow. So the other guy, you could break his bones, but he was just super strong for this other guy. I guess so. They couldn't be broken. Except that, okay, so what's interesting is that weightlifters have discovered that there's like a point where their muscles sometimes can become so strong that they're, the muscles are stronger than their bones. Mm. And so even though they're capable of lifting up something that's very heavy, it will break the bone inside of them. Wow. Because their bones can't... Can't take the stress can't of like the contraction. Can't take the stress of... Yeah. Wow. So maybe the, well, all I'm saying is that the science tells me that if that guy can pick up mountains, then his bones are probably pretty strong too. They would have yeah. to be yeah. to like withstand the pressure, but it's neither here nor there. We're like, wait, let's get into it. 
So the fifth brother, he had legs that could grow tall and thick like tree trunks. So the sixth brother could never, ever become hot. He was always in a state of perpetually feeling cold and frozen. And the seventh brother, who was the youngest in this family, he, when he was unhappy, could cry a sea of tears. And so his brothers always worked very hard to keep him happy. Yeah, that's typical youngest he, brother crap, you know, like crying all the time. They could just like cry. About I know. I, I, I'm like, wow. So this like cry baby, <laughs> what trope or whatever has been around for like centuries. Yeah. But yeah, his tears were so like destructive. He would cry so much that he could sweep a village away. Oh, man. And so his brothers no were bueno. like, don't. Yeah, don't ever let him cry. (laughs) All seven brothers lived happily until one day when the first brother could hear off in the distance, a hundred miles away, the crying and groaning of the people who were working on the Great Wall of China. And so he said to his brothers, I can hear this loud moaning and groaning over by the Great Wall of China. Second brother, can you look and see what it is? So the second brother looked up, crossed the horizon, 100 miles away, which if anybody doesn't know the curvature of the earth, you can only see into the distance eight miles before the curvature of the earth dips down. So Mm. there's also probably something funky going on with his eyeballs. He would have to get up very, very high. I I guess. (laughs) Or maybe he could also see through the earth, x-ray vision on top of it. Or maybe... The earth is flat. And this is proof. And this is proof. (laughs) So anyway, so he looks up and he can see 100 miles in the distance all the people who are working so hard building the Great Wall of China. And he says, oh, they're like, they're all so tired and so weak and they can't get it done. So seventh brother, he hears that and he's like, that is so sad. I feel so bad for these Uh-oh. people. Uh-oh. So he starts tearing up and his strong brother, his Herculeanly strong brother, he says, no, 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 seventh brother, don't cry. <laughs> please. <laughs> do not do, please don't do that. Do not cry. I will go and I will help them. So the third brother, he walks the hundred miles to the Great Wall of China, and he starts building. So he's, like, grabbing these great stones, and he's lifting them and laying them down. And after he's done all of that work, laying this whole section of the Great Wall of China, he's exhausted. So he sits down to take a nap. So while he's napping, the people who are supposed to be working on the wall look and see that it's already completed and that it's been completed by this one strong man so they quickly they go and they run and they tell the emperor hey there's this big strong guy who's come and he's done all of this work and at first he's like oh good i'm glad that got done but then he's like wait how strong is this guy that he was able to do that in a day when i've had hundreds of people working on this and it's been taking them so long mm-hmm. And he decides that he doesn't want somebody who's that strong and that powerful to be alive in his kingdom. So he sends two armies worth of uh, soldiers to go and get the third brother. So third brother is napping and he wakes up and there are two armies worth of people. Oh, man. (laughs) Standing there ready to take him hostage. So they grab third brother and they take him and they throw him into prison, which I don't know how this prison was capable of like holding the strong guy that is neither here nor there in the story. You could not just like lift it up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's like open the bars and like leave. But anyway, so they have him in the prison. I guess the prison wasn't very secure. We're about to find out in a second. So third brother finds out from the guards that they are planning the next day to put him to death. They're going to execute him by chopping off his head. So he is crying in his cell about how sad he is that this is happening. So first brother hears the crying and he's like, what is that? So second brother looks and he sees that it's third brother in a prison crying. So I guess his eyes are x-ray. They can see through stuff. Yeah. 
So he's like, it's third brother. He's in prison. So seventh brother hears this and he's about to cry. <laughs> and <No>. fourth, <laughs> he's like, no. So fourth brother says, no, 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 no. Seventh brother, do not cry. I will go and I'll take his place. So fourth brother goes and he sneaks into the prison and third brother sneaks out. And this is why it comes in handy that all the brothers look so similar to each other. <laughs> because the next day, the emperor and all the guards don't notice that it is not the right guy. So when they get him up in front of everybody to publicly execute him, the executioner lifts up his axe and he swings it down and clank, it breaks. <laughs> nice. So all day long, they are trying at, as much as they can to hack this guy's neck off and sword after axe after mouth, everything that they try breaks, shatters. They That's cannot cool. break this guy's neck. So the emperor says, throw him into prison. So they throw him back into prison. And he says, tomorrow we'll try to drown him in the sea. So night falls. Fourth brother is crying. Because I'm imagining, since he has bones made of iron, he's pretty heavy and he will sink. (laughs) (laughs) So he is crying. And first brother hears him crying. And then second brother looks and confirms, yep, that is brother, our fourth brother, crying because they're going to throw him into the sea tomorrow. So seventh brother is about to cry. And fifth brother says, no, 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 it's fine. I'll go and take his place. (laughs) So fifth brother and fourth brother swap places. So the next day when the king goes, they retrieve fifth brother, put him into the boat, and... They put him in a ship and they throw him into the ocean. But since his legs can grow very, very long, (laughs) he's just standing there like he's in the shallow end and the water's only going up to his waist. So they pull him out of the water. They sail out further into the ocean and they throw him in again. But this time the water only goes up to his chest. So... They pull him back out of the water. They go out the farthest that they can go and they drop him in the water and the water is only going up to his chin. (laughs) So the emperor says, well, this isn't working. So they pull him back out of the water. They sail back and they throw him into the prison and they say, tomorrow we will burn him. So fifth brother is crying First brother hears him, second brother sees him, and they say, oh no, tomorrow he's going to be burned alive. So seventh brother is about to cry. And sixth brother says, no, 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 you don't need to cry. I will go out and I will take his place. So he goes out, switches places with his brother in the prison. So the next day, when the people are making this giant fire, and they stick sixth brother in the middle of it, They light him on fire and he is sitting there in the middle of this fire, just going, oh, this feels so good (laughs) to be warm. (laughs) So he's just like luxuriating in the warmth and keeps telling them, put more on, put more on. I'm starting to cool down, put more on. So all day long, they're trying and trying and trying the best they can to burn him. And he just will not burn. So, so the emperor says, okay, pull him out of the fire. Tomorrow, what we are going to do is we are going to get all of the archers and we're going to firing squad him to shoot all the arrows that we can into him. So, sixth brother gets taken back to the prison. He's sitting there and he starts to cry. And first brother hears him and second brother sees him and they say, oh no, tomorrow they're going to shoot sixth brother full of arrows. And first brother says, listen, there's nothing that we can do about that, which I'm like, can't they just like put fourth brother out there again? (laughs) I'm like, guys, we can do this all day. Uh, (laughs) Match the brother to the situation. I mean, you got a brother that can handle it. Yeah. And they're like, how long is this going to go on? So, first brother says, there's nothing that we can do about this. Let us all go out 
to six, brother, so that we can all face the arrows together. Which again, I'm like, yeah, that'll work for most of them, except for fourth <laughs> brother, who's going to be standing there like, <laughs> like, well, oh well. But anyway, so they all start their journey out there together. But poor seventh brother was so upset that he couldn't help but start to cry. And so his first tear fell, and it was as big as the longest river in China. And then his second tear fell, and it was the second longest river. And then pretty soon he was crying, and he couldn't stop himself, and it turned into a great ocean of warm salt water. So it says that the tears flowed down that 100-mile distance until it got to the Great Wall of China. And... His tears swept one army to the west and one army to the east. And the emperor, it was said, was tossed so high in the air that he is still trying to return to his palace. (laughs) So the brothers were freed. So the brothers met up on the Great Wall of China and they spent the evening holding each other and fishing and laughing. And that night, They feasted on fish and were happy to be together again. (laughs) No knowing what happened to the rest of the people in China. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. But yes, I felt like these two stories had a lot of similarities with each other. Yeah, I was surprised. Which is super fascinating like because you've you've got like the thousand mile eye guy which is kind of like the marksman in that he can see really well from really far away and yeah i mean even down to like in that first task when when like the taking a nap it's like there's like weird little stuff like that where yeah like, like huh like that's similar in like ways that it's like Oh, that's interesting. And I mean, just like this group of guys that have these like superpowers that they're like super powered mm-hmm. people. And in later versions of the Seven Chinese Brothers story, there's now this like backstory that the brothers were like a part of like a pearl bracelet that was worn by a goddess. And then when the pearls were swallowed by a like childless couple, Mm -hmm. when the babies were born, they were like these 10 powered brothers because they had come from these like pearls Pearls of a goddess. goddess. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so it's like, there's these like vast differences from the story. And then there's these like weird things that seem really familiar. Yeah. And during my research for the thousand and one nights, I came across this quote in the Arabian nights, a companion (laughs) (laughs) about the Arn Thompson Uther index for like folk tales and fairy tales. And I thought that this quote was really interesting and applied to this these two stories that we're looking at. So the quote is, However, though there is some overlap between Arab popular literature and the European folktale, Arne's story type classification was designed to trace relationships of borrowing and descent within European folklore. It was not designed to accommodate works of Arab literature. And here I would argue also... East Asian literature and Mm. storytelling as well. Unlike the story type classification, the way the motif index was compiled did not carry the built-in presupposition that any or all the items listed under a particular heading were genetically related. So when we're looking at stuff being like, oh, this element is in this tale and this element is in this tale, you can't suppose that because they contain those items that they that the stories are genetically related to each other. Right. That they like come from similar sources or anything. It's just like could be coincidence. Yeah. If one is going to adopt a comparative method, then it may be more important to focus on fundamental differences than on superficial likenesses. And incidentally, it is not easy to see how one's understanding of anything is advanced by putting the eight-legged Norse flying horse Schlepnir in the same category as the Arabian ebony horse. Because, yeah, it's like, even though there are flying horses in both of these two different places, 
it doesn't necessarily mean that the stories are related or that we can suppose mm-hmm. anything off of that. Just yeah. like, even though these two stories seem like they are related to each other, the 10 Chinese brothers and how six got on in the world, just because we can see likenesses in them, it yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean that they are genetically related to each other. And so I think that's interesting just because even though I was like, wow, this story sounds like really similar to yeah. 10 Chinese brothers, I don't have anything that proves that these stories are related to each other. Yeah. That that one led to the other. I can tell you that the story of the 10 Chinese brothers is probably older than how six got on in the world. But that that. That doesn't mean anything. That's neither like here nor there, perhaps. Right. The thing that I think is interesting, too, because you think about like, I was thinking this as we were going through and you were naming all of the powers that the 10 Chinese brothers had. A lot of them are the things that you would expect. Like if someone like held a gun to your head and you're like, come up with superpowers that humans would have that would be useful, like super sight, being able to hear things really well, you know, just like taking our senses and enhancing them, strength. Yeah, strength. Like, lots of yeah. those are things that would just come up. It is interesting that there are some that are so specific, like the guy that's always cold and like the guy that had, who, if he puts his hat on the right way, will like create a frost. It's like, that is very oddly specific. But Yeah, but then you have some that, there wasn't like an equivalent for like yeah. the the running really fast. This one, right. even like when you stretch it out to the 10, like there's one that uh, one of the 10 brothers that's capable of flying, but they right. didn't have one that was like super fast runner. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting to see how it's like, you know, there's going to be overlap in the types of things that we consider to be superpowers. Yeah. Just based on our own like human experience of like, oh, this would be nice if I could do this. It would be helpful in my survival if I had this kind of a power. The thing that I liked that was a big difference between the two stories was how the brothers were brothers. They're all related to each other. And that affected the way that they interacted. Yeah. Like they're always trying not to make the little brother cry because making him cry would have some terrible consequences on them and those around them. How they're always working together for like what's best for each of them. Like there's not one brother. In the other story, it's like this one guy who didn't have any powers at all was just like, I want to rob the king of all of his wealth. So I'm going to gather a team to do it. And he did. And like they were kind of working together, but they didn't really have much of a reason to. And I don't know. I just really loved the relationships between the brothers where it's like the one would hear something. And so he's like, brother, I hear this. What do you see? And so then he would see it, you know, and they kind of played off of each other really, really well, which made for a really fun and interesting story, even with the like swapping in and out of prison and stuff like that, too. Yeah, because it's like it's fun seeing that like outsmarting the king by like being like all sneaky and stuff. Um, But yeah, like it's fun that they're that they're working so well together, like in the story as brothers. Yeah. Cause it is fun to see that, that like dynamic because it's like the, the thing that I find the most compelling similarity between them is kind of how they can be used. And like kind of what goes back to the conversation with like Jack Zipes, where he's talking about how he liked how six got on in the world because it is this story about like, hey, there is this this leader, this king who has all of this money and all of this like wealth. And we are like soldiers or the one was a soldier. And he for defending the kingdom got paid in like next to nothing. Mm-hmm. And he's able to then kind of use the powers of everybody. Yeah. To like use the strengths that all of them had to stand up against this like one dictator, the King and take his wealth and redistribute like his wealth. <laughs> and so, you know, Jack Sipes was seeing like that in that story. And I thought it was interesting that the, the seven Chinese brothers or the 10 Chinese brothers, that story was used to kind of, Talk about displeasure with this emperor, even though it wasn't 
this emperor was long gone by the time that this story was being used to talk badly about this emperor. Mm -hmm. But like one thing that's amazing about storytelling is that sometimes you can get your feelings out about something in a way that is safe for you yeah, or safer than saying something directly. Yeah. And we've talked about this like in the past, like with different fairy tales that like one thing that is amazing is that they can be used in this kind of like subversive manner. Mm -hmm. And so this tale was used to talk about and voice kind of the dissatisfaction with emperors who exploit people and give them nothing and see how these brothers can use their strength to defeat that that ruler. And so I think it's so interesting that like in both stories you do have these like superpowered people doing similar things in that what they're doing is like defeating a leader. Mm-hmm. So I love that in how six got on in the world, the princess doesn't end up <laughs> with <laughs> yeah. like any of these guys. Cause there is so often like in stories where it's like, Oh, if these guys can do this amazing thing, I'll give them my daughter. And then at the end of the story, the daughter usually, yeah, gets, you know, traded like, a <laughs> like any other object. But I like that in this one, they're like, nah, we didn't really care. Like <laughs> they we were didn't just in it for the money. Yeah, we were just in it for the money. We we don't want your daughter. You can keep her. <laughs> Even though she's apparently like really fast running. So whether these stories are genetically related to each other or not, it's super interesting to me that you have these like vastly different uh, cultures. One in like Ming Dynasty China and the other in, you know, the... 1800s Germany you have these stories that both are talking about how to defeat authoritarian rulers even if it's just through the power of storytelling thank you for listening to the fairy tellers If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inge for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar One from, you know, Ming Dynasty, China, and one from, uh, what's, what's that period of time? The Grimms that lived in. Germany.